It is one past noon in Alberta. I'm truth be told, I'm coming to you from Halifax, where it is one past three. But uh, happy to serve as the moderator for today's panel. My name is Osa Katchen. I am by day the chief librarian and CEO for Halifax Public Libraries. And I'm also the chair of the Canadian Urban Libraries Council. So uh, I connect with the most amazing colleagues across the country. We talk about all kinds of things, library, but but what has concerned us and, and occupied us um, in some respects more than we ever expected over the past few years has really been uh, freedom of expression. So it's a 40th anniversary this year of Freedom to Read Week. Um, and I can remember 10 years ago thinking, you know, it's great we're celebrating Freedom to Read Week, but this is well understood in our country. And, um, you know, I, I believe many people understand it, but I also believe it is under threat in a way that it has not been um, in Canada in, in certainly in my professional life um, and likely in my lifetime. Um, and, you know, one of my, I have wise children and my oldest wise child said to me one day, um, censorship has never been on the right side of history. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. So these attempts um, to limit people's freedom to read, um, you know, come from a place of wanting to take, make decisions for what others can, can consider, what opinions they can, they can explore and uh, what, what viewpoints they can, they can understand. So we have a fabulous panel today. I'm going to get right to it. Um, uh, I want to acknowledge I'm coming from uh, Chibuktuk um, in Mi'kma'ki and we have people coming from all kinds of territories across this country, well beyond Alberta. So I encourage everyone today to give a little reflection and, and from where you have come and, and the history of our land and, um, and take a moment to pause. We often go through our days uh, exploring this beautiful country and living in this beautiful country, not always remembering to acknowledge uh, those who hold this land. So please take a moment to do so today. All right, I'm going to do a quick introduction to our to our panelists um, today, and and I think you've all got your names on your on your <laughs> screens, but you may want to give a little wave. So, uh, joining us today for this panel is Christopher Wells. So, Christopher is an associate professor and Canada Research Chair um, for Public Understanding of Sexual and Gender Minority Youth, and Christopher's based at McEwen University. We have Kit Dobson. So Kit's a professor in the Department of English at the University of Calgary. Um, Kit's most recent book, Field Notes on Listening, was one of CBC's top nonfiction titles for 2022. We, we could have another whole conversation on how to listen, don't you think, Kit? <laughs> um, Angela Gogia is the Retail Manager and Events Coordinator for a bookstore I just love called Another Story Bookshop. So one of Toronto's oldest independent bookstores with a real focus on social justice, equity, and diversity. And, and you know, when we think about freedom to read, there are many of us who work hard at, at sustaining this in our country. So really delighted to have Angela from a bookstore. Jesse Bach, fellow public librarian, hooray to the public librarians. Um, Jesse uh, grew up on a family farm, has a has her education from University of Saskatchewan and, and a Master of Library and Information Studies from Dalhousie. And Jesse now works at the Marigold um, Library System in Alberta. 
So I thought I might start with some reflections and I encourage anyone who didn't read it to have a look at Sarah Millier, the CEO of Calgary Public Library, did an excellent op-ed yesterday in the Calgary Herald. And, and she really approached the, the idea of freedom to read. You know, she said, we take for granted that we have unrestricted access to information. Um, she talks about, you know, it is a pillar of democratic society. It's not something everyone in the world benefits from. It certainly is not something we have had always around the world. To, well, we currently, there are many countries that restrict access. Um, you know, I think we have, if we believe fundamentally that in the trust in the people within our democracy to consider many perspectives, to, uh, to engage around topics, to want to deeply understand one another, consider alternative perspectives. We can't achieve any of that without freedom of expression. And, um, you know, I think that that sits at the heart of today's conversation. And, and it's a conversation we should be having during Freedom to Read Week, but it's a conversation we should have every week of the year. And uh, so, you know, I encourage people to read Sarah's. I also encourage people to read your op-ed, Kit. You had an excellent op-ed this, this week in the Globe and Mail. Let's start with you. Talk to us a little bit about your your experiences. You recount some really interesting things that you've undertaken in your in your role as a professor in mm -hmm. working with young people around understanding this. Let me pass it over to you to start with. Sure. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the generous introductions for everyone. Um, it's lovely to be joining folks here from Treaty Seven Territory in Southern Alberta. Um, I was just looking also at the people who have joined us today. I see a number of friends uh, in the list of participants. It's nice to see you. And for folks I don't know, it's lovely to meet you virtually. Um, yeah, so to the the point on the, the op-ed that I uh, had published in the Global Mail over the weekend, um, I, I'm speaking there to a course I recently taught at the University of Calgary. It's a large first-year course. Um, the, the course is a, sort of a designed to be a capacious one. It's called Literature and Society. So I organized my iteration this year around banned and challenged books. Um, and my, my goal with the course was, uh, you know, I've been following these uh, conversations for a long time, um, reading, you know, following this in, in uh, newspapers and public reports, seeing various ways in which uh, we're seeing just tr tremendous rise in challenges to books, banning of books, books being removed from libraries, books being sort of move to different sections of libraries, books becoming sort of, you know, uh, disappearing off of shelves, um, even as far as, you know, um, either contemporary threats of, or in uh, one very recent case, actual book burnings taking place. Um, so I've been following this for, for some time and was trying to think about, you know, what are the kinds of ways just in, uh, within my role that I could meaningfully respond um, and I think this is maybe a, you know a question you know for those of us on this panel we're all coming from different positions, different roles, different professional uh, you know, responsibilities. So yeah, the question to me was how you could meaningfully respond. And so um, I yeah I determined to come up with my course as a course specifically on banned and challenged books. And uh, you know it was designed to span from the 20th into the 21st centuries uh, and designed to introduce students to a wide range of texts. Um, as well as you know, a uh, range of different kind of issues and concerns. So we you know started with Lady Chatterley's Lover, famous novel by D. H. Lawrence, completed in 1928, but not publicly available really until the 1960s. It was a novel that was suppressed until the 60s when a series of uh, lawsuits made it publicly available. 
working from there up to uh, Maya Kobabe's uh, graphic memoir, Gender Queer, which was, uh, we're waiting for this final statistics for 2023, but for 2022 was the most challenged uh, and banned book in the United States. It was tied for first place uh, in Canada as well for you know, most banned and, and uh, most challenged book. Um, so these are you know texts that are uh, provoking a wide range of strong responses and uh, under, sort of you know con continual threat and continual challenge you know one of the the books that to me was one of the most interesting to teach in this course was tony morrison's 1970 novel the bluest eye which although it's a novel that was published in 1970 uh for the 2022 statistics from the american library association it was the number the third most challenged book uh for that year so it's a book that you know although it's an older book it remains very much uh, hotly contested um a number of things that we found uh, in this course that I think were um, ones that I anticipate many people in this panel, many people who are joining us like they are already aware of. The, the books that are being routinely challenged are uh, by BIPOC authors, by uh, LGBTQ plus authors, by dealing with themes that uh, you know are resonating with the, those authors' concerns as well, perhaps. And so these are... Um, you know, challenges that are just in incredibly widespread and that um, in my own reading are far, you know, uh, far from innocent, far from disinterested. They're in fact increasingly organized uh, and deeply politicized challenges that are designed, uh, in my view, to suppress and stifle a range of political views that um, some people simply are not comfortable with uh, having in public discourse. So I'm personally deeply alarmed by this trend and the uh, massive increase in challenges, particularly in the United States has been very well documented. These challenges are rising in Canada alongside those ones in the United States. And so this is a conversation that needs to be handled in Canada as well. Um, but I wanna say like one of my, you know, my experience with teaching it was a, ultimately a, really a very positive one. Um, one of the things that was um, you know, among my takeaways were, you know, teaching as a first year class, nearly 90 students in this in the you know, large room, so large lecture class. So I went into class every day, kind of, you know, with, with my heart a little bit of flutter, kind of thinking, you know, today's the day somebody could be really upset about, you know, any of the things that I was teaching, right? Um, and across the whole semester, that, that never happened. Uh, in fact, at no point were any of my students, uh, did anybody sort of vocally express their displeasure in class. What I found mostly was that my, you know, students, and these are, you know, by and large, young adults, this of course designed for first year students. So students were somewhere in their, their university journeys. Um, <clears throat> you know, students who were keenly interested to learn more about the world. And when we talked about the possibility that other, you know, that other forces were endeavoring to stifle what was available to them or to shut down what they would themselves have access to, um, they would immediately grow concerned and, you know, one of the refrains I heard again and again was that students ultimately really want to uh, be able to you know, read books for themselves, make decisions for themselves, evaluate texts you know, according to you know, their own criteria. Certainly students were at times uncomfortable with some of the material. They were challenged by the material and that was always my intent as well. Um, <clears throat> but I ultimately, I, I took heart, I think, from... Uh, that experience of seeing, you know, getting a group of people together and genuinely engaging with a series of texts was incredibly rewarding. And mm -hmm. so among my takeaways too, is that, uh, you know, um, 
actually reading the material is deeply important. One certainly sees again and again in some of the online vitriol directed towards many contemporary texts that people are saying, I don't even need to read these books. I know that I know that they're dirty, bad, whatever, pick whatever label, uh, and therefore won't read them. Let's just ban them. Um, to me, that's a, an extreme form of bad faith, uh, political action and, and voicing of opinions. Once we started to read the texts, you know, we ended up having fantastic conversations. There's a whole bunch more I could say, but I know we're really limited for time. So I'll, <laughs> I'm happy to say more in due course, but it was, it was, I, I'm taking heart from a lot of it, but well, also it was a very challenging experience. Yeah. I think you, I think Kit, you really picked up on something because it is in the, in the reading that we have the conversations that we deepen mm -hmm. our understanding and that this sort of enormous fear because it's of almost like, I think it is bad faith, but I think it's sort of born of fear, um, is, you know, I have sat across from people who have demanded that our library withdraw books and have been the only one in the room who's read those books. So I think it does, it, it in fact, we should encourage exactly what you're doing. The more we read, the more deeply we understand um, I think um, Rudine Sims Bishop back in 1990 did a really interesting um, comment. He he was an expert in, I think it's a he, I'm assuming gender here, I'm not sure. Um, uh, you know, but a specialist in multicultural children's literature talked about introduced at books as mirrors. So you see yourself reflected, you feel belonging as a window into somebody else's life and another viewpoint and a place to to gain caring and appreciation and, and sliding glass doors. It can be the, the perspective that changes how you move forward through the world. And so, you know, how can that be anything but, but important in, in the development of all of us as human beings? So I want to skip over to you, Christopher, you know, the, the, it is, it is very clear in all of the statistics in the United States, but also Thank you. And thank you, Spencer. I'm so sorry. Rudine Sims Bishop is a woman. I The minute I said it, I thought I, I have no idea and I'm making an assumption. So I appreciate I appreciate the correction. Um, so, Christopher, you know, it's very clear in the statistics that when when we people who are, you know, when we move toward um, attempts to to ban books, um, overwhelmingly, it is a voice of of LG, 2S LGBTQIA plus folks and other voices that have fought hard to be heard that are the ones that that will be the first to be silenced and overwhelmingly silenced. So uh, let me let me pass, uh, you know, pass the microphone over to you. Talk to us about what you're finding in your research and and, you know, why it is so important to to stand up for the freedom of expression and, and the freedom to read. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks. And uh, great to be here with uh, my uh, esteemed panelists from across the country. Um, I'm based here at uh, McEwen University in Edmonton, Treaty 6 territory. And in terms of my own uh, positionality, um, I was a classroom teacher. Uh, so at, at my heart, uh, I am an educator in the K-12 uh, school system. So I'm very invested in curriculum and in in literature and as you you said uh you know windows and mirrors is a as a metaphor we often use um you know in our school system that our, our classrooms or the halls and the walls and the books and the materials need to uh you know reflect back the diversity of a student experience and what does it mean 
when uh, you know you go to school and and the books that you read or or the curriculum that you're um, exposed to doesn't reflect your lived reality, right? We we often talk about this as a pedagogy of silence or negation, and the effects that that has on young people, the internalized shame, or or for our LGBTQ young people, the internalized homophobia, transphobia, and, and biphobia that creates this culture of invisibility and silence and often fear, right? And it's a big barrier to being able to come out. And we know for young people in particular, literature can be that lifeline to know that I'm not alone in this world. And, you know, thankfully, you know, here in Alberta and, and elsewhere in Canada, we have wonderful literature, wonderful ex ex examples that open up those windows and those those mirrors for our, our young people. So what, what I wanted to talk a little bit about in, in this given uh, context, and certainly here we're in Alberta, the heart perhaps of much of this uh, controversy, where I often like to say Alberta doesn't look east or west for its influences. It looks south to the United States and particularly to the southern United States. And every day it seems uh, recently that Alberta is uh, becoming more like Alabama than uh, other uh, provinces. So uh, we can get into that. But I want to do a throwback. I want to do a throwback 22 years ago. Many of you may remember these books, two of the three that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, Ash's Mom, Mums and One Dad, uh, Two Dad, Brown Dad and Blue Dad, Dads, um, that uh, were banned by the Surrey uh, School District. And uh, it was a gay teacher, James Chamberlain, who fought those uh, that book banning all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And we had some very in in interesting and instructive comments that came from the Supreme Court, um, which I think, uh, you know, what's uh, what's new is old or what's old is new again. We're dealing with these same kind of issues that were very much at the forefront uh, of our society 22 years ago. But uh, the Chief Justice uh, famously said that tolerance is always age appropriate. Children cannot learn unless they are exposed to views that differ from those taught at home. And in essence, this is the entire role of our public institutions in society, particularly our public schools and our public libraries, right, is, is to create those safe havens to uh, support this freedom of expression, to be able to have this diversity of materials in which young people can find themselves or find their communities, a, a space and a, a place where they can relate and connect to and, and safety. So flash forward to where we are right now in, uh, you know, 2000. And uh, for uh, some of the latest, you know, stats, uh, I always like sort of to, to put the stats out there because, you know, we need the stats and the stories that the human impact behind the stats. But the Canadian libraries reported between September 1st, 2022 and August 31st, 2023, you know, 118 reported challenges to books in Canada. And of course, these are only reported, right? We know that the number is vastly greater than that. But that was up uh, 55 uh, from the previous year, right? So that's a, almost a hundred, over a hundred percent increase. And from the year before that, it was ranging around in 2020 around 46. So you know, uh, of those 118 reported challenges, 44 were related to LGBTQ plus issues, themes, or content. So that's about uh, close to 40 percent of all challenges. And of course, this is up 
from 8% of the challenges being based on LGBT content from 2015 to 2021. So you can see we're seeing, you know, huge growth in the number of challenges, what is being challenged. So we have to really ask ourselves, well, why is that, right? Where is this sort of coming from? And I think where we can connect some of these issues together is certainly, you know, the glowing, the, the increasing rise of uh, growing global populism and far-right ideologies, right? So for me, for example, today, if I were in Russia doing this talk, uh, I would be arrested right on the spot for uh, gay propaganda, right? Where it's illegal even to publicly talk about or as it's seen as promote LGBTQ issues. So it always makes me, uh, reminds me of, of the privilege and the responsibility we have here in, in Canada, right? One of the countries that were known around the world for perhaps one of the last hopes of multiculturalism and and diversity right in, in our society where we're seeing increasing global tensions and conflicts and so right what we see with these far right ideologies and this growing global population populism is the need for scapegoats right the need for distraction and the lgbt community and particularly the trans community um are the targets and we're seeing this show up uh in increasingly over the last couple of years in particular um, uh, with uh, protests and attacks uh, on our very streets. Uh, you know, drag queen story times, which, you know, here in, in Edmonton, we we incubated and, and started over a decade ago without much, any controversy or fanfare. Now we're seeing protests from people show up outside of uh, school, uh, outside of public libraries. And in fact, even uh, school um, in front of schools now. Um, and a lot of this is this this notion over drag queen story time, right? And uh, even in the past week, we saw news reports coming out of Calgary where LGBTQ books were checked out and returned vandalized. Um, and now, right, there's a criminal investigation uh, into that. Um, you know, as a side note, I wonder how people think that they can check out books and not be, you know, uh, known who they are, but um, when they return them vandalized. But um that's that's another issue. But uh, the reason we see behind whether it's protested drag queen story time or challenges to books and school materials is this claim that somehow, right, these books are sexualizing, you know, children um, They're or as we're seeing now where they're grooming them. Right. This this notion of grooming becomes the shorthand for right this uh, connection to pedophilia, which, of course, we know the research shows that overwhelmingly you know 95 percent plus of uh pedof pedophiles are cisgender heterosexual men right the the threat is not coming from the 2s lgbtq plus community or that this is a form of uh indoctrination or we're hearing these 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 made up phrases such as uh, gender ideology um but what it does is it creates this moral or or what we might call a trans panic right that or or as has been said perhaps more colloquially uh, this gay this gay panic right don't say gay and somehow this is this uh, underlying assumption that being lgbtq is like a virus or a contagion or a pathology that you can simply catch it um or that Im vulnerable or impressionable children will somehow wake up because they read a book and all of a sudden start to self-identify or want to change right their gender and of course we know that that just doesn't happen right when you actually look at at the evidence you know, um, reading a book doesn't change a person's identity. It, it actually can help them to express their identity and their sense of self. And then, you know, here we are in 2024, within the past few weeks, seeing, um, you know, a return to censorship in schools with Premier Danielle Smith um, now invoking.
invoking this 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 phrase of parental rights, which assumes that uh, you know uh, parents are ordained from God to um, uh, control and, and in many ways own their children and uh, determine what they're quote unquote exposed to. And as we've seen from the Supreme Court of Canada, that is not the role of publicly funded education in schools and libraries is not to share the values that are taught at home, but in fact to teach the values of what it means to be a responsible and respectful citizen of Canada, right? And that means embracing and understanding the diversity and the multiculturalism and the pluralism that is around us, not as a weakness or something to be feared, but as Canada's greatest strength and Canada's greatest hope, um, you know, in this world. So, you know, this notion now in Alberta where our premier has said that these topics, particularly the topics of sexual orientation, gender identity, sexual health, um, are so dangerous that parents now will have to opt their children in to every single discussion that happens in school. So interesting for a party that claims to be all about freedom, that they're actually restricting freedom, freedom to read, freedom to understand. But also under this notion of parental rights, we have to really question whose parental rights are we talking about here? Because what about the parental rights of, of, of those same-sex parented families? Um, back to Chamberlain that want to be represented in schools and have their young children go to, to schools in safe and, and supportive environments, or the rights of, of uh, 2S LGBTQ children who want to see themselves reflected in the halls and the walls and the curriculum and feel safe in their larger uh, communities. So um, we're dealing with, I think, very you know challenging times. We're seeing uh, strong far-right Republican influence start to now creep into Canadian discourse. And I would actually say that, you know, conservative parties in Canada don't actually exist anymore, that the, the conservative parties are actually far right parties. We've lost this notion of progressive conservatism or this conservatism that was, you know, about, um, you know, um, uh, sort of a fiscal responsibility, but social progress, right, where the, I think the vast majority of Canadians actually are. And so it's no surprise to me that, again, if you want to control the future of society, the first thing you go and do is control what young people learn in their schools and in their communities, right, where this this notion of this censorship uh, begins. So, yeah, oh. I think I'll just uh, stop there. And uh, thanks uh, for the opportunity. Now, I think I lost Christopher's voice at the tail end. I'm not sure if it was just me. But um, no, that's fabulous. All right. Thank you. And, you know, the everything that you say, um, you know, weighs heavily on all of us uh, when we think about about what makes Canada um, a good country. It is a country founded on respect, on appreciating and um, and accepting uh, the diversity that is our country. And and these are these are definitely challenging times for us as a democracy, I think. So I want to move on to Angela. You know your bookstore that you work at, another story bookshop. You have been on the front line of of this for many many years, and. Um, you know, you have always leaned into giving voice to people who had trouble having their voice heard. Um, I want to talk to, you know, I want to hear from you about the role of the bookstore um, in this space of, of freedom to read and, and you know, in, encouraging uh, consideration of, of, yeah, different perspectives. Oh, I think we have you muted. I'll just get you to unmute. 
There you go. Uh, thank you to everyone. And thank you to Kit and to Christopher. That was fascinating. And yes, you know, we're in a u- unique position as a bookstore that is committed to social justice, equity and diversity. Um, I think everything that the previous speakers have been speaking about, these are the books that are the core of what we do and what we sell here in Toronto. We are a major vendor to schools and to libraries uh, across Southern Ontario. And if you come into our store, you're going to see a big section on LGBTQ children's books, on books for black children, on books for indigenous children, um, books that deal with race and, um, you know, issues for children who are non-binary with queer parents that are front and center. Um, and I think bookstores have an important port, an important role to play across the country in making sure that these books are front and center for everybody. We have seen definitely a lot of pushback over the last several years. Um, and thank you, Christopher, for showing Asha's Two Moms and the Two Dads books. I wanted to highlight these two books over here, uh, Linda Guyen's Mystery of the Painted Fan and Selma Makes a Home by Danny Ramadan. And, you know, these are two lovely children's chapter books written by writers of color in Canada that both have queer content in them and were both shadow banned by the Waterloo Catholic District School Board recently. And um, when we see what's happening with the States, we can definitely see it coming up here and So I wanted to bring up this notion of shadow banning, where it's not an outright ban, but these are things that are happening in school boards and in libraries where they're being told quietly not to order or to profile certain books. So this is an issue that's becoming um, much more, um, uh, we see it happening much more in our school boards as well. Um, I think for a bookstore like ours, you know when you're coming in what you're going to find. You're going to find the centering of, you know, queer and trans and BIPOC voices. So if you don't want to buy those books, you're not going to be coming to the store. But you can see, you know, I'd be curious to know how different bookstores across the country are dealing with this. Are they, you know, facing out their queer and trans books by children or are they quietly putting them in a corner somewhere, right, where they can't be seen? Are they hosting book launches by uh, queer and trans writers for children's books, or are they just politely declining? I think there's lots of nuanced ways that these um, issues are being dealt with um, in the bookselling industry. And, you know, I would be remiss as well to say that um, when we talk about censorship and when we talk about what's happening around book bans and censorship with writers, we can't ignore what's been happening the last few months with um, what's happened in Israel and Palestine for the last few months. We've seen definitely an impact here in Canada where books are being um, banned or conversations are being stopped as well. Um, one of our favorite book writers is Elise Gravel, who's a wonderful children's book writer and illustrator from Montreal. And there was um, an incident in the last few weeks where she's been quite active on Instagram, posting some things. And uh, there was a push to get her books um, banned from the Jewish Library in Montreal, which was very unfortunate. There was a demonstration and her books have now been put back on the shelves. But we can't ignore that censorship around Palestinian voices is happening across the country as well, where um, writers are being pulled out of festivals, where uh, we saw in Fran- Frankfurt, um, Adnia Shibley's book, Minor Detail, was she was denied a prize. Um, so there's been 
a number of issues in regards to censorship of Palestinian voices, as well as the ongoing censorship of QT BIPOC voices. So again, as a bookstore, it's our role to make sure that we're profiling these books and profiling these writers and creating a space where um, this is at the forefront of what we sell and what we do. Uh, Angela, I appreciated your ex expansion of this because it really is around the other, right? The perspective, yes. other perspective, the other voice, the other, um, the other viewpoint. Um, and I actually think if we, if people want to walk away from today with sort of a challenge for the week, it's grab something you think you're going to deeply disagree with and hold on tight and read it to the end. Yeah, because, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, you read it and it changes how you you view a situation and sometimes you read it and you mount your your angry defense like your angry offense against it but for whatever but still read it like that has to yeah. be that has to be uh where things begin uh jesse let's move on to you you are in the trenches in supporting um you know and i i, I mentioned this i think before we started the panel you know i am in a large urban library i uh, sort of quite connected to other large urban libraries. We all have um, access to good legal support and, and you know, typically have lots of colleagues with us on the ground. I often think about the, um, the circumstances that are facing librarians who are working in a community where they are maybe uh, alone in their library or with a relatively small team around them. Talk to us about what your your experience has been sort of supporting those libraries and, and really working in this space um, as a librarian over the past few years with, with the issues you've faced. Thank you. So yeah, I currently work as the um, communications and engagement manager at Marigold Library System. Um, I have a background in collection services as well. So we um, at Marigold, we work with about, I can't remember how many there is right now, 36 uh, sort of small and medium-sized libraries in South Central Alberta providing library services. Um, actually, in preparation for, for this panel, I took a look at a, the Center for Free Expression at Toronto Metropolitan University keeps a library challenges database. And um, that database has a list of challenged um, like library books and library programs. And it's just fascinating because you can click through and read about the nature of the complaint um, and how the library resolved it. I would definitely recommend giving that a Google later if you have a spare hour and, and going down the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but I, I took a look at the database for uh, recently for challenges reported from Alberta libraries in 2023 and found more than just a few. But um, these include one book called Being You, A First Conversation About Gender. At the Red Deer Public Library, this book was, was vandalized. Um, and also challenged by a patron for being pro-LGBTQ. Uh, Another example is a book called My Body is Growing by Dagmar Geisler. This is a children's book about poetry, and that one was challenged last year at the Olds Public Library as being inappropriate for children. And I know it's come up already in this talk, but um, the Reading with Royalty drag storytime programs at Calgary Public Library, as well as at many other um, libraries across Alberta, maybe they made less of a splash in the headlines, but there were there were several that received, um, you know, challenges and pushback and and nothing short of verbal abuse, I think, on on uh, social media and maybe even in person. Um, so those are all some examples of of items and programs that were that were challenged just last year in Alberta. Um, libraries, uh, as was already mentioned, too, receive a whole bunch of like um, informal challenges as well that likely never 
um, never get reported as an official challenge. So this can be in the form of, of vandalism of certain materials, um, theft of books, checking items out and, you know, conveniently losing them or maybe hiding them around the library. Um, I've heard of examples of, of uh, quote unquote controversial materials found stuff behind the cushions of the couch in the children's section, that kind of thing, just so they can't be, you know, accessed. Mm. Um, and one library that I worked with in the past too had a, had an issue with a patron who was, I believe, repeatedly caught moving books about religion from the nonfiction section of the library interspersed throughout the fiction section. And um, I don't know if you're in a, if you're in a library of any size, it makes it really, really hard to find those again once they're out of order. Um, other libraries have had books returned to them with, you know, words or sections blacked out with a Sharpie or, or the so-called offending pages ripped out, that kind of thing. So there's a lot more of that sort of subtle, um, yeah, subtle challenges going on in the background as well. Um, I've also, I've heard lately too about, uh, more anecdotally, I guess, that some libraries are receiving requests that, again, don't quite amount to censorship, but I am I find them concerning and it makes you wonder what's going on in the background. So, for example, a, uh, a member of the public has written into a library to request a list of all materials by or about um, to address LGBTQIA plus people at the library, or asking that all materials about sexual orientation and gender identity be you know, clearly labeled with some kind of hot pink sticker on the spine and moved to their own section of the library. Um, in these cases, uh, I believe the libraries just responded by, you know, sending these people instructions on how to search the library catalog for these subjects themselves. <laughs> um, I'm not going to do that work. <laughs> um, as you as you mentioned, Osha, the, uh, this can be really overwhelming for, for a lot of libraries, especially in some of our smaller communities where they may be the only staff member. They probably know everybody in town. Um, it kind of it can create some, you know, some some tensions and sort of like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this? So we feel like the best tool that libraries have to push back against materials challenges is through, you know, solid collections policies and structured processes for submitting a challenge. Um, this kind of it takes like a judgment call, I guess, away from the specific staff person and by creating a, a formal rigid process for it, um, I think it can remove a little bit of, of uncertainty and a little bit of conflict. So these policies will often state um, that the role of the library is not to be any sort of a supervisor of public morals and that individuals and parents must judge for themselves what is appropriate for them and their families. They'll also emphasize the duty of the library to obtain and hold, you know, quality materials that explore diverse topics, opinions, and viewpoints. Um, so when a patron wishes to have an item removed from the library, they will usually be asked to begin the official process by completing a form. And the form will ask some standard questions about the patron's contact information and the title and the author, other details about the items in question. Um, they also it will generally include questions about what the patron specifically has found objectionable within the material and what action they think the library should take in response to this. Um, and as uh, I think you mentioned earlier, Kit, one of the questions on a lot of these um, on a lot of these forms is, "Have you read this whole book?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, library staff will then they will perform a formal review of the work and they will you know look at things like book reviews any awards the work might have received the reputation of the author and publisher library circulation and use stats and other factors like that before deciding um whether any action should be taken so the patron who made the challenge will be notified you know whichever way it comes out with their complaint um 
most of the time the item is retained in the library collection and they're given you know a succinct explanation as to why but sometimes sometimes it can result in a solution like moving an item from one section of the library to another and often that that may be entirely appropriate i don't know but for example from you know young adult fiction to adult fiction or from juvenile fiction to like manga or something like that um Interestingly enough, I did find a couple examples in the library challenges database of items that were removed from library collections following a challenge. Um, one of these was last year at Grand Prairie Public. It was a film called Bad Roads that I have not heard of nor seen, but it was challenged last year at Grand Prairie for graphic violent content and was ultimately removed from the collection. And you can see the whole the whole response from Grand Prairie Public with a letter on that website. It's great. Um, and then back in 2019, uh, this one kind of gave me a little giggle. It's nice levity for this topic. Um, Edmonton Public Library removed a book about soap making after a, cha a patron challenged it because it contained in incorrect instructions for mixing lye and water that could have actually resulted in like an explosion and serious injury to the soap maker. So they did take that book out of the collection. Seems reasonable. Um, you know, it, it can be tough. As a librarian, I really feel this, especially when I worked in materials selection and acquisitions to put your personal feelings aside in situations like these to ensure that you know we're building a well-rounded collection that contains quality materials encompassing the full spectrum of viewpoints you know whether we personally agree with them or not i think that's that's one place where our jobs are maybe a little different than angela's in the bookstore um it's not really up to us to to choose the content i guess so far as we are choosing quality materials so yeah it's uh, you really have to remember that when we're thinking about libraries and intellectual freedom, um, that public libraries, we aren't really out here defending the contents of our books, but we're defending people's rights to access information and to read things from a variety of voices and viewpoints. So their freedom to read, basically. Mm. Yeah, Jesse, I think you land on a really interesting note at the end, because um, I, I will often have people say, how could you have that book in your library? Do you really you're platforming that author or you're platforming mm -hmm. the viewpoint. Um, and I think you really hone in on something very important for public libraries that, you know, certainly in my library, we've got uh, around a million items. There are many, many of those books that I, I deeply disagree with, right? It might be a, a some fad diet that I think is yeah. absolutely ridiculous and, and not probably in people's best interest from a health perspective. It might be a viewpoint about, you know, the rights of women that that feels deeply personally offensive. And, you know, there mm -hmm. are there will always be things in a library collection that we disagree with. But my I said this earlier, this concept that if I disagree with it, I should still have access to it. In fact, right. it's paramount that I have access to it. Or how can we have a conversation about something that is hidden from me? And so that I think separates should people should sort of separate themselves from the deep dive into a particular content of a particular book and acknowledge the democratic right to to consider and argue for argue against you know that there's a there's a so much in a democracy that is founded on our ability to disagree respectfully with one another and you know certainly we need our public institutions to uphold that um, you know, it's been interesting the last few years, certainly um, challenges have come, you know, uh, where people have called materials hate speech. Well, of course, we have a very, very specific legal definition and librarians are not the arbiters of hate speech, nor are bookstore owners. That is that rest with the, the courts. It, 
the same is true of pornography. So um, there was a recent case where, you know, a, a group took um, it's perfectly normal in the bluest eyes to the RCMP serious crime unit to investigate uh, under the claim that they were pornographic. Of course, it was well um, doc it determined that they, in fact, did not meet the definition of child pornography. So, you know, we have actually a legal framework in our country that that puts some edges around some things. Um, and in fact, I'm thinking about the film maybe that was withdrawn their film. Mm -hmm rating boards sit differently from, from literary work. Um, but it is a, it is so important with, you know, considering those limits, everything else should be pretty free range. So I'm seeing a couple of questions come in on the, on the chat. So I'm just going to scroll down. Has anyone looked into the sales bump from banned books? So that comes to us from Sean Hunter. So Sean, that's an interesting comment. I haven't, and, and, uh, Angela, you may have a more of an ear to this as a bookseller, but definitely, you know, Mouse Mouse had a lovely resurgence when Mouse was banned. Mm -hmm. That one stands out to me. Absolutely, we sold uh, when Mouse was banned. We did immediately did an Instagram post, um, putting it on our feed. It's a book that we've always sold proudly, and then it went into reprint because the sales were so high. So I would say absolutely you do see a sales bump when books get banned. Um, Mouse, it took us a few months to get it back in, but we sold lots of them. So for sure, there is a sales bump. But again, I think there's a lot of layers to, um, you know, how books get banned and how does that come across in the publishing industry, right? Like, are publishers going to take a chance or will they jump to something that might be controversial, right? Is a very good question that I would love to ask a publisher. Um, because there is a saying, any publicity is good publicity, right? So, and for us, we certainly sell a huge amount of books by, you know, queer, trans, non-binary authors of color. We see a huge resurgence, uh, a huge surgence of libraries wanting these books for their classrooms. Again, as Kit said, these are mirrors to the world and sliding doors to other worlds. And for us, it's not just selling black books to black families. It's selling black books to all families. It's selling the queer and trans books to all families that come in and promoting them to everybody because these are books that everybody should read. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I would say there's definitely a really big interest in the many schools and school boards that we work with for for these books and for their classrooms. So I I appreciate that. I think that's true. We're certainly noticing um you know a, a stronger commitment to to diverse voices to sort of push against the the any desires to silence. I'm just checking the chat again. Um you know what with controversy comes the opportunity to educate Christopher that is absolutely true. We, um, yeah, in those discussions, we come away with a deeper understanding. Now I have a comment from Julie. Julie, it's a little long, give me a moment. Um, yeah, this is interesting. So the, Julie's comment is, I have a frustration that's maybe different from some of those mentioned. Since 2016, I lead a public political book club in Calgary where the aim is to read books across the political spectrum with the goal of fostering discussion, reducing polarization, well done. I completely, I completely um, endorse that. I think it is to understand other perspectives. Now, what um, uh, having difficulty finding books from the right wing viewpoint often don't meet the the standard of mainstream publishing. Um, decent quality books from the right. 
due to the current climate on the left. You know, I think there's a, that you raise an interesting comment. And I think often, um, you know, often the bands will come, uh, but we have bands from all sides. So bands are not the right banning the left. Um, it all, it goes all directions. Um, and I do think we need to lean in to having more conversations with one another. There is, um, you know, uh, there are really interesting um, Urshad Manji, if folks haven't sort of read any of, of her work, she talks about, you know, don't label me, how do, how do we figure out across our, the political spectrum and across our differences? How, what are the things, we may have these many things that we are, don't agree on, but what are the things we have in common? And, and truly, um, so much about freedom of, to read and freedom of expression is about seeking the humanity in one another and the understanding in one another, even in even amidst things we disagree with. Um, we really do need to find opportunity to step across the polarization that we're experiencing. Um, and freedom of expression and freedom of uh, to read is founded in that. Um, Oh, I like this recommendation. Uh, Lori says she loves the idea of libraries requiring complainants to read the entire book before before they'll be investigated. You know, I actually think if people read, I suspect we would have much uh, much less complaints. Never is quite as powerful when when it, it might actually be boring, right? You know, the thing you were so fearful of turns out to be a bit banal. So um, think that's a that's a fabulous idea. Um, um, oh, what was Christopher's publication about how to listen? I think that was Kit. Kit, do you want to put a quick plug in for, for your book? Well, that's kind. Um, I published a book called Field Notes on Listening with Wolves I Can Win back, uh, it was in 2022, um, which is ultimately a, a personal account of my own experiences traveling and returning to Northern Alberta over much of a lifetime and thinking about that as listening to land, listening to family story, listening to our contemporary political climate and uh, came from a time of real sort of exhaustion and burnout and feeling like the world had been uh, very loudly shouting uh, at us all for a long time. So, you know, having wanted to uh, find ways to listen and really value that as a political act. Mm -hmm. um, and there you are. Ashley's just posted a link to it. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, I think it ties quite closely with what we're talking to today, the the ability to access viewpoints and hear from others and, you know, really lean into things that we wouldn't naturally be drawn to. Um, we really, you know, I think we are at a particular time in our political history right now uh, where AI circles back to us opinions we already hold. Um, you know, search algorithms are always redirecting us to people who share our value the whole uh, time during COVID, when we narrowed our circle, we we typically, if we all reflect back on who our small circle was, we probably shared similar opinions and maybe some similar lived experiences. So that reaching across um, is just so important um, and absolutely uh, think these two things tie very well together in terms of trying to create a good foundation for, for our country. Um, just having a, a look here. Other questions from, from the folks listening in? Yeah, what is something members of the public can do to stop book bans beyond speaking with others, having that dialogue, opening our social circle more? Should we be writing letters to our school boards, purchasing from smaller bookstores, looking for non-mainstream authors that might be shadow banned? I think my answer, Miguel, is all of the above. What do our panelists 
say? What would your, let's maybe go around. We've got eight more minutes. Let's go around. What, what's your, what's your plea or your request to the, to the participants of this, uh, of this workshop today? I'll, I'll maybe just jump in right away. Cause I have some quick, uh, thoughts about this. Marshall Lederman has been writing about this issue in the Global and Mail also for a while. Mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, a really good article that, that Lederman wrote, I think it was in May 2023, um, where Marshall Lederman said, one of the things you can do is thank a librarian, like write yeah. to librarians and thank them for the difficult work that they're doing. And I think that's excellent advice alongside, I, obviously, I'm a proponent of reading banned and challenged books, seeking them out and finding them, but also uh, reaching out to to people to let them know that you're you know in their corner or that you're that we're in community together. I think that's really important. I think it definitely tell a librarian you love them, but just saying. Okay, <laughs> over over to you, Angela. I think definitely speaking to your local school boards and to your schools. And if you've got, I've got two children in the public school system, and um, making sure that the teacher librarian knows that you support having books by queer, trans, you know, authors of color, that that's important to you, right? It doesn't matter, you know, what background you come from, but that you want your children to have access to those books and to read them. If your library doesn't have a budget, you can get together with some of the parents in your neighborhood and buy books for the school, right? Definitely support your local independent bookshop. There's a, you know, we have an incredible array of fantastic bookshops across Canada, find your local indie, buy the books from them, support the writers that are doing this work and that are getting banned and shadow banned. Mm -hmm. um, it's absolutely important. And even the public library, just, you know, if you see queer and trans or books by people of color, or books by Palestinian writers, if you see displays, thank the people who work there because the people who work there get a lot of crap, right? And it's really important that we give them a lot of support as well. And sometimes that emotional support mm -hmm. is really important and we don't realize it from the outside, but it is. It's nice for them to hear, hey, thanks for profiling that book. We appreciate it, yeah. right? And Angela, I would add to that, borrow that book because when we make decisions yeah. about what books, I mean, we're forever pulling things off the shelf that aren't circulating. You want a book to remain in the public library, borrow it. Because yeah. then it, you know, then it, it remains in the collection. Uh, so I, I think that's, that's fabulous. Uh, Christopher, what's your, what's your great advice for folks? Yeah, I would take it one, one step further. I like to often say that uh, we get the communities we're willing to build. And that means, you know, moving beyond our keyboards and, and getting out and getting engaged. Um, you know, um, uh, not only volunteer with your 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 local public library, but consider sitting on their board. They're often looking for people to have this kind of guidance and input. And to take it one one step further, um, I would say run for your local school board. We actually know what we've seen is a trend where um, you know people are actively organizing and mobilizing to take over the school boards to run these particular candidates that then control the school boards and then set the policies that leads to the kinds of censorship that we're we're talking about. So you know we want you to be a strong public defender of uh, you know democracy and this freedom to read, which is what we're here all celebrating. And um, you know uh, the best way to do that is is to get engaged. Yeah, terrific. Jesse, what's your what's your plea to listeners, your words of advice or your request? Yeah, well, I I mean, for the most part, I think I agree with what what everybody has said already about supporting your supporting your public library, um, borrowing those books, because as you said, the more they're the more they're used, we see people like them, the more they're purchased. And it 
you know, and it's supported. Um, volunteer for your local library board. Again, I think it would be a really great time because library board appointments are quite political. Um, library boards in Alberta, uh, board members are appointed by their town councils. So um, depending on how things go, <laughs> uh, we could see those maybe changing in their, um, in their tone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, agreed with everybody there. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think my advice to everyone is not to lose touch with this issue. Um, if I reflect back, I became a librarian 30, over 30 years ago. And at the time, I just sort of assumed it was well understood and recognized and acknowledged. And, you know, here we sit 30 years later, something that I have viewed as foundational to Canada has been really challenged over the last few years. So to remember why it matters to us in, in Canada, why we need to uphold, uphold it. You know, I encourage folks, again, read challenged books. Um, you know, if you've got a book club, have a banned book club. You know, it's so interesting to look back on what was banned at different times in history and why were they banning it? What were they afraid of? What was the what was the intent with request to censor? We can often look into history and it gives us a, a good guide for moving forward through the future. So I encourage people to lean in. And, and if you read it for your book club and you borrow it from your public library, it's going to stay on the shelf. When it wears out, we're going to buy a new one if it's still being read and it's still popular. So um, so there's so much that every one of us can do and and talk to people. Uh, you know, I think about some of the issues that, that have been polarizing inside families and inside neighborhoods and inside workplaces. Um, if we lean out and don't want to talk about it, that's not going to get better. So so lean in, don't be afraid to explore this and to unravel some of what lies underneath it. And, and, you know, I hope humanity will shine through and, and someday, you know, our efforts have been worthwhile. And uh, as we move forward through Canada, all right, we are at, at two minutes to the hour. Uh, Christopher, you said first they came for the books. I think those are, those are heavy words. Um, and words we need to be mindful of. I, we have many examples in history, you know, where, where censorship was the beginning of the erosion of, of rights for people. So um, important for us to gather today. Very grateful to the panel members. Um, you've all brought such interesting, you know, we didn't know each other before this started. And I want to hang out with all of you. You're terrific. <laughs> I appreciate your points of view and the work you're doing and, and uh, really grateful we've had this time together and really grateful to the audience. Uh, that took their time in the middle of their day to sort of block out everything else and just focus on this very, very important issue. And, and the Alberta Writers Federation, thank you for, for your leadership in this area and your care. Um, you know, this is, we need to talk more, not less with each other. And so thank you everyone for joining us. Um, go on with your day and, um, and read a banned book and, you know, we'll step in the right direction. Thanks everyone. Thank you, folks. Take care.